podcast has not been sanctioned. The battleground was Monday nights. 80. For a campaign of 83 consecutive weeks. 3. There was a clear winner. This is story war. Weeks. This is the story of that campaign. 83 weeks. 20 years later, the time has come the whole truth. For the whole truth. This is 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson. Hi everyone, welcome to the best of 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson. I'm Tony Schiavone, and I'm your host this week as we relive some of the moments from the early episodes of 83 Weeks. There will be no shortage of controversial moments, arguments, or never-heard-before stories. This might end up being the greatest best-of special in the history of our great sport. I'm only kidding, of course. Not really. You'll hear things that you might have missed the first time, some of the most infamous moments as well, and I'll be here with you the whole time keeping those tape machines rolling. The first episode of 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff gave everyone a glimpse of the success that would be to come to the podcast, as well as one of the many of Eric's epic rants against a certain wrestling reporter. Here, from episode one, on the original NWO, we hear about Hulk Hogan's decision to be the third man, and find out, once and for all, was it ever going to be Mabel? Let's talk about the week leading up to the bash at the beach, because Meltzer says the original plan was for Lex to be the third man, but there's also, there's also rumors out there about Tatanka, Mabel, Crush, Brian Clark, Roddy Piper, Isaac Yankum, the British Bulldog, Bret Hart. At any point were any of these names ever discussed? I was thinking about using Meltzer's mother, but she wasn't available. Uh, no, that was, that's so ludicrous. And people wonder why I get hot. People wonder why Bruce gets hot. There's a perfect example of the legacy of Dave Meltzer. Where those names came from, I have no freaking idea. None. Absolutely none. It's, there's nothing that he has ever printed that could be more stupid, more ludicrous, and more untrue than that. That's saying a lot. Let's talk a little bit about, um, Bret Hart just briefly, because there's rumors because his contract is uh, sort of up for grabs and you're going to be competing very soon for it. Was Bret Hart ever considered? Were you having any conversations? I mean, had you even spoken to Bret at this point about anything, not necessarily this angle. First, you asked two questions. The first answer is absolutely friggin' not. Bret Hart was never a syllable of a conversation, syllable uh, in any statement that was any part of any conversation as an option. Never happened. Put that one to bed. Had I talked to Bret, I don't think at that point I had talked to Bret. I mean, I think I met Bret after that for the very first time. Um, but no, at that point, it was never. The only other person that was. It was to me. It was always going to be the three that I chose, and Sting was going to be the guy that was going to turn because I wasn't sure about Hulk. And I know you want to talk about that later on, but I wasn't looking for anybody outside of that equation. I wasn't looking at anybody from the WWF. I wasn't looking at Dave Meltzer's mother. I wasn't going to hire, you know, <laughs> anybody that I knew from high school. None of that. It, it, it was always going to be internal. 
Okay, well, let's actually get, get cooking here. You wrote this in your book about Sting. We spent four or five weeks developing the idea, giving hints and laying the groundwork, and we planned to unveil the third guy at Bash at the Beach. I didn't know myself. It had to be someone inside WCW, but beyond that, I wasn't sure. I decided to approach Sting, but I didn't know if he'd do it. Joining the outsiders meant he'd have to turn heel, and Sting had always been a very successful babyface character. Sting was receptive, not knock me over enthusiastic, but receptive. Everyone could see the power in this storyline was developing. Just a few weeks old, it was already one of the most interesting stories in the last five or ten years, and we began discussing how the storyline might develop. I talked to him a couple of times in person and over the phone. No one else knew we were talking, not even Scott and Kevin. The identity of the third person had to be kept an extremely tight secret. I've always been curious about this and everybody has their own opinion, Eric. How might the business have been different if Sting had been over the moon about the idea? And when you tell Kevin and Scott, they're both pushing for it before you ever speak to Hulk. If all three guys were super enthused about it, what might that look like? Hypotheticals are always hard, Conrad, to, you know, to be fair to everybody. Who knows? You know, is there a chance that that angle could have been even hotter? Maybe somebody has it. Maybe somebody has that opinion. I don't. Um, in my opinion, it would have been good. It could have even been borderline great but I don't think it would have been something that we'd be talking about 20 some odd years later. Well, let's get to what we're here for. Allegedly you visit Hulk Hogan at his house to pitch him on an idea of turning heel. And he basically showed you the door. This is a pretty famous story. Was this before or after you had the idea for the NWO? I was it like a year. Well, the idea was kind of forming in my head. And again, as a result of being over in Japan and trying to do something that felt more real, as, as well as, you know, back when I, and now we're skipping, skipping around the timeline, so it's easy to get things a little confused, at least for me, even with all this caffeine. But I think it was about a year before um, that I pitched Hulk uh, the idea of turning heel, partly because the babyface red and yellow thing just wasn't working. I mean, it, it wasn't. Hulk knew it. I knew it. Um, sure, you could go to center stage or you could, you know, do a clash of the champions and you'd get your requisite, you know, Pavlovian, you know, response where certain people at ringside would cheer and they wear their yellow shirts and, you know, swing their yellow foam fingers and all that. But the largest majority of the audience weren't buying it anymore. And it was apparent to everybody. Um and again, I wanted to do, I knew we had to do something different. So I went to Hulk's house. I, I, I flew down. I had my own plane at the time. I flew down, uh, met him during the week, middle of the afternoon. We sat and had a talk, probably had a beer, everything. You know, we had a really good relationship. And then I went into my pitch. And he very politely looked at his watch and said, well, you know, thanks for coming down. I got to go pick the kids up at school. And walked me to the door, and that was the end of it. Uh, he went off to go do a movie, and I went back to work. And shortly thereafter, the NWO idea started coming, 
you know, materializing in my head and Scott and Kevin. And then it was like, who's going to be the third guy? And now we're at that point in a storyline where I'm talking to Sting about that. And eventually Hogan calls and says he wants to talk to you. So come out to LA where I'm filming a movie, saying it with muscles. And Hogan sends a limo for you. When you get there, you arrive in his trailer and allegedly there's beers and cigars waiting for you. And he hits you with, so brother, who's the third guy? Take it from here, Eric. You know, I, I, I had mixed emotions and I remember that night pretty well because I knew I was being, I don't want to say set up, but I knew there was a reason that he wanted me to come out and talk to him. You know, he couldn't get away from the movie set. I didn't mind going out to LA. So I, but I knew there was something big on his mind and I could tell by the tone in his voice when we talked on the phone that he was kind of feeling optimistic or positive. So I was, I was pretty curious when I got there and I, and I suspected that it had something to do with what, you know, he was seeing. I think it was Jimmy Hart was sending him cassette tapes of Nitro at the time. So he was following along, um, watching what was developing. So I was, I was curious, but I was, I wasn't feeling, uh, there was no trepidation. You know, I, I was just more than anything. I was curious. And when we sat down and, you know, cracked a beer, lit up a cigar and he said, well, you know, who's the third guy? I don't remember word for word my, what my response was, but it was probably, you know, well, who do you think it should be? You know, and that's when he jumped in, said, you're looking at it, brother, or something to that effect. No one knows better than me that co-hosting a podcast with Conrad Thompson means you're often caught in the crosshairs of a tenacious interviewer. And at the same time, that somehow means you also have a lot of laughs. Very early on, Eric gets to enjoy both sides. Let's finish out, uh this bit from the book. So Nash got the book and as most bookers do, he began to write storylines designed to make himself the center of attention. His main idea was to set up his big win over Goldberg for the belt at Starcade. Step one was to put himself in a three ring. Number one contender battle Royal at world war three, a show that ended up better than expected. Seeing as it was expected to be the worst ever step two was to book himself as a man who then ends the win streaks. Coincidentally, there was another man on Nitro who'd been on a win streak lately and was starting to get over. His name was Wrath. Nash beat him in four minutes and 45 seconds the next night, and that was the end of him getting over. When did you think, and I'm, I can't wait for you to tap dance around this shit, when did you realize that Nash had hurt the company? Was there sort of a, what alcoholics would call a moment of clarity of, oh, fuck, we're in trouble? There was a, there were a lot of those moments of clarity, but it had nothing to do with Kevin Nash. It's Brian Alvarez's perspective. It's not mine. Kevin Nash did the best Kevin Nash could do. I went along with Kevin Nash. Put it on me. Don't put it on Kevin. Kevin might have been the booker, but he didn't have the final say. I did. To me, that story with Kevin and Bill and Hulk leading up to to January fourth, which would have taken us into the plan of. NWO Nitro, WCW Thunder, to me, that plan made the most sense. And Kevin was the best guy because he was believable. We turned Bill into a monster. Who else was going to beat him? And by the way, despite Alvarez's, you know, amazing, amazing perspective, Rath couldn't string a sentence together. He couldn't cut a promo. Wasn't believable. Just because a guy can have a good match doesn't mean a guy is a big star. 
And we've seen that over and over and over. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're paying Bill Goldberg five fucking million dollars here and he can't deliver seven sentences and you're going to shit on wrath. What's the difference between Goldberg and wrath, except one you fucking paid five million to big difference. Bill could cut a promo in the ring. He wasn't good outside of the ring. He wasn't good in a scene like we gave him because he didn't have that much experience. Okay. Wrath couldn't cut a promo in the ring. What's your favorite Bill Goldberg promo? I fucking don't remember. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Everybody who says, oh, he was a good promo. Fucking give me one. I'll go back with you. One of these days, we'll go back on twitch.tv forward slash in three weeks. So we'll look at all Bill's. We'll look at all Bill's promos. And together, we'll pick our favorite. Yeah. Remember Bill's promos. Bill's character didn't require a promo. Bill was a believable guy. <laughs> well, but it had not. You can laugh your ass off if you want. If you can't tell me that you can compare Raph and his character to Bill Goldberg, you can't. Even if neither one of them were required to string a sentence together. They were two different characters. One was believable and intense, and the other was a big guy. One was booked to be believable and intense, and the other one was not. Says the man that's never had to book a show. What are you booking these days, buddy? Here's the silliest of the silly shit. Here we go. The police surround Goldberg here on this show and say, you're under arrest. He of course protests and says, it's going to take all of their guns to take him down. And then he says something like this to officer Jack that he says he's known for years, whatever it is, whoever charged me with whatever it is, everybody in this city knows I do nothing but positive things in this community. I do things for the kids and fallen cops. And nobody can take me in for anything I didn't do. Whatever it is, I'm innocent. None of you guys can take me downtown for something I didn't do. I don't like being wrongly accused. I stand for good in this community and no one else can tell me otherwise. Eric, you had to watch this this week. How fucking painful was this to watch in 2018? Really bad. Oh God. It's awful. It was, uh, you know, and I, I always, and I say this to this day, if I was producing a wrestling show tomorrow, I would go at it from the point of view is less is always more. Leave a little to the imagination. Show a lot of emotion, but don't talk too much unless you're really, really good at it. And as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, who in the hell produced this? And why did they just shut that down? I do nothing but good in this town. I save people from fires. I work for fallen soldiers. I walk old ladies across the street. I mean, what the only thing he didn't do was heart transplants in that scene. It's just, it was, it was horrible. It was just horrible. I felt bad. It's awful. I mean, you've got to go watch this. It's the most wrestle crap thing ever. On episode three, Eric tells a story that he never offered Bret Hart a contract in early 1997 which surprised Conrad and admittedly and surprisingly threw the usually unflappable Podfather off his game. But Conrad would clap right back a couple episodes later. From episode three, Eric's initial story about his meeting with Bret Hart, along with Conrad's confrontation with Eric two episodes later, when Conrad unreservedly and unconditionally calls bullshit on Easy e uh, Allegedly in this meeting, you say something like, so what's it going to take to bring you to WCW? And Brett says, I would want the same contract as Hulk Hogan plus one penny. 
and he would classify your response as flabbergasted. And he says, you said something like, I can't do a deal, anything like that. Not right now. And he sort of dismisses it and says, well, that's fine. I'm not really looking to go anywhere. And you persisted. Come on, at least give me something. I can go back to my people with anything. Brett says he thought for a minute and he says, I think about coming to work for you guys for 3 million a year and a lighter schedule. And allegedly you say, Hey, let me take this home to the Turner folks in Atlanta. And, uh, then you guys just got right back to talking about gunfighters. Do you remember how all of that happened and him throwing out $3 million a year, which feels like a really tall ask in 1996. It's insane. It's insane. And I think what happens Conrad, I've I've said this before and I'm going to take my time and not blow through it. And I'm going to try real hard not to be too disrespectful to Brett because there's a lot of things about Brett. I do respect. I respect the fact that he made a great living in a career and made a lot of money in a business that is excruciatingly difficult to, to be successful in. Whether I like him or not, whether I think he's the greatest performer in the world or a mid-card jabroni, it, it doesn't matter. I still respect him for what he's accomplished. And the fact that, you know, it, it, it's a family legacy. And, and, and out of that respect, I'm going to try my best my very freaking best to be careful about what I say. Now, my experience, especially after listening to other podcasts and doing interviews over the last couple of years, and some sometimes it's uh, you know it, it's about people that I know and like and I'm still friends with. But I think what happens to guys is they tell the same stories year after year after year after year in interviews or whatever. And they suddenly start embellishing those stories a little bit every time until they get to the point after five or ten or more years, they actually believe the version of the story that they're now telling. And there is such a small grain of truth to that version of how that meeting went. There may, and I put, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give Brett the benefit of the doubt out of that respect that I just described. There may have been a, hey, what would it take for you to come here? Offhanded kind of almost joking con- comment, maybe to feel him out. But there's no way he threw out a $3 million figure. And if had he, I would have, you know, happy to have paid for his beer and had a good joke and continued talking. But I can tell you it didn't happen. It absolutely didn't happen. In his mind, it probably did because he wants to believe that, but it did not happen. Well, all right. Um, let's clarify here. Brett says you called back two days later with an offer of $2.8 million for three years. You're saying that didn't happen either? No. I think what's happening, you know, and however Brett remembers this, or possibly doesn't really remember it. You know, I think he's conflating two different scenarios, a meeting in 96 that was nothing more than a, Hey, let's meet face to face and see how we get along. And if that goes well, maybe down the road, we'll have a conversation about a deal. I think what Brett has done in his own mind is conflate that with what we did talk about in 97. And all of a sudden now they're one in the same in his mind. They've completely merged and, and it's just it's so convoluted. It's mind boggling. 
Well, Brett goes in great detail in his book. And he says that, you know, once he got this $2.8 million offer from you for less dates, uh, he takes it to Vince and, uh, Vince says, Hey, he can't come close to matching it, but he would love to meet with him and present his idea because quote WCW would never know what to do with a Bret Hart. And he asks for a few days to make a counter. And I've always just been fascinated by this because it just doesn't make any fucking sense. So I guess it makes a lot of sense now that you're sort of debunking it all. Well, let's talk about some things you wish you could do over. And that's the bullshit you laid down on that Bret Hart episode. A couple of weeks back, we mentioned that last week's episode was in the can before we had a chance to review, but now we're going to go back. We're going to get in our rewind machine. If you haven't listened to our Bret Hart episode, please do. It's at 83weeks.com. And I had an entire format based around one idea. And the idea was that Bret Hart was offered a contract in 1996 from WCW, and it was a pretty substantial offer. And my entire format was based around this, what I believe to be fact. And Bischoff called bullshit and said that was not true, and it did not happen. In the meantime, everyone and their brother has come out of the woodwork to tell me differently, including a detailed explanation from Dave Meltzer, where he personally had this contract. What does he have? Does he have it now? I'm sure it's good to look at it. I'm sure it's going to pop up, but all the details that he laid out, he actually has a copy of it. And a lot of other, Then then why haven't we seen it? A lot of other wrestlers who, and people who, uh, were close to Brett, including some of his family members who listen to the show that I probably shouldn't name drop say they too saw it. And so as if this weren't enough, and I thought it might be you yourself acknowledged the shit in 1997. So let's get into it. You did a couple of prodigy chats in 1997. The first one was January, 1997. And the question on prodigy was. Eric, what do you think of stars like Shawn Michaels, Sabu, Taz, Bret Hart, and the pure real wrestlers? Would you like to bring them to the WCW NWO? And if so, in what way DDP rules? And you responded, I find it ironic that someone would throw Taz and Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels in the same category and refer to the group as real wrestlers. Everyone knows that I love, I would love to have Bret Hart on our roster. He's not only a phenomenal talent, but one of the class acts in our industry both in and out of the ring. I'm not sure Shawn Michaels would ever fit on our roster. And I don't know enough about Taz to have an opinion. I've only seen brief clips of him. So you're saying everyone knows I would love to have him. No big deal. Let's fast forward to April of 1997, another prodigy chat. And the question is, could you shed some light on the Bret Hart situation? It's my understanding that there were a number of dealings and problems between Hart and WCW and the WWF. And you reply. There were no problems. I laid a deal on the table. Vince laid a deal on the table. Brett made a decision he thought was in his best interest. And I enjoyed every minute of my dealings with Brett Hart and hope he feels the same about me. I hold him in my highest regard personally and professionally and wish he had made a different decision. So what's your question? You said you never made a fucking offer. And now here you're saying I laid a, a, a deal down and Brett chose a different one. Who was I talking to in that prodigy chat? Bob Ryder. Who'd Bob Ryder work for? WCW. So your question is, 
me as a character and as, and as the guy that ran the company, because they were, they were one and the same, you're suggesting to me that I used an extension of WCW, which was the prodigy chat with an employee by the name of Bob Ryder who worked for us. Your bitch is the fact that I used that format to help get over a talent that I thought I may work with in the future. What would you have supposed I should have said? He's a piece of shit. He's a fucking idiot for no. going back to work for Vince no. McMahon. The issue is not saying that the issue is two weeks ago, you were on this show denying you ever offered him a contract and here you here's written evidence where you admit you did offer him a deal. I said, I offered him a deal on a prodigy chat. Did you, would you have believed everything that I said or anybody else said in the WCW magazine or on the hotline oh, wait, are or, you, are or you everything that WW that Vince McMahon would have said in a WWF magazine, it was promotion. It was hype. Are you fucking serious right now? Bret it's Hart what has- I remember. Listen, I've said to you before, I prefaced. When you ask me these kind of details of shit that went down 20 years ago, if Dave Meltzer or Dave Meltzer's relatives or anybody else wants to show up and say, here's the agreement that you, that you said you never offered, I will eat it. Wait, can we eat it? Literally eat it on Twitch. Yeah. Okay. Just a couple pages of it. Not the whole thing. That's what she said. So, um, <laughs> here's another thing from this, from the same prodigy chat. I'm not done. Eric, what one wrestler active or not in any organization, would you like to come to WCW? And you said, I'm pretty happy with our roster, just the way it fits. There's really nobody out there that would be available. I'd be interested in, as I said before, I wish Bret Hart had made a different decision. Other than that, I can't think of a piece of talent. I regret not having on our roster. Someone follows up and says, you keep saying you wish Brett had made a different decision. What were your plans for him? And you get fucking detailed. You say there was a lot of opportunity. We discussed. There were several matches Brett could have had. That would have been big money matches. Certainly he and sting would have been a big success. That would have been phenomenal. Given all the rhetoric between Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan, the personal issues there would have been a tremendous thing to play off of. And there were a number of really interesting scenarios that we would have put him in a much brighter spotlight than he has now. I, and I can't, I can't, I'm, and I'm not being a smart ass here, right? I'm trying really hard to find out, to put myself in your shoes and try to understand why you think that is so abstract given the situation in 97. I hired him in 90. What, what, what year did I hire him? 97 or 98. I don't the, remember the, the very end of 1997. He showed up in, uh, all right. Yeah. All right. So, so I, obviously I had respect for the guy when I hired him, obviously I would have wanted to hire him. And obviously I'm going to say things, especially in a fucking prodigy chat where I'm trying to put people over and put our company over. I'm going to put anybody that I'm talking about, particularly somebody that I may or may not work with in the future in a positive light. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why the fuck you have a problem with that. I have a problem with you saying you didn't offer him a contract and saying it's all fucking fantasy. And this two I'm, point st- I'm sticking to it until somebody shows. Don't tell me Dave Meltzer saw it. Don't tell me Bret Hart's cousin saw it. All right. If I did, and if I don't remember doing it, I will pay the price. I will 
eat that fucking thing on twitch.tv forward slash 83 weeks. But until somebody shows it to me, I'm sticking to my shit. I'm not done. We got one more thing I want to hit you with because you have been so critical of Dave Meltzer and he has responded saying that you're a con man and you're a liar and that you've been caught here. And he goes out of his way to, and I believe him, tell the truth that you're fucking way off base on this Bret Hart contract and it's all bullshit. But here's what you said about Meltzer back then. Here's the question from the prodigy chat, April 97. Thousands of wrestling fans subscribe to the wrestling observer newsletter and call it and call the wrestling observer hotline all the while expecting to read or hear the best and insider WCW news. Since so many fans spend their hard earned money on this newsletter and hotline. And since you're at the center of WCW happenings, could you please share with us your personal measurement of the observers accuracy and the access to inside WCW news? Does Dave Meltzer have the amount of scoops that we think he does? And you say, actually, Dave Meltzer individually is far more accurate than anybody else that I read. Meltzer doesn't have a tendency to editorialize as much as some of the other writers and also relies on information he gets from arenas, rating reports, buy rate information, etc. And he gets that from legitimate sources. Many of the others rely on second, third, or fourth hand information and are too lazy or too cheap to get quality information firsthand. Do you feel differently now in 2018? No, back then I was actually considering doing something with Dave. There, there was a point in time where I was actually talking to Dave Meltzer and I wanted to try to bridge the gap because by the way, this is the guy, I know people are tired of hearing about it, but I can't help it reported that Mabel was under consideration to be the third man in the NWO. Where the fuck did that come from? What little bird, what stooge decided to spill that to Dave? And Dave, without picking up the phone, without verifying it, prints it, reports it. Not as, an, not as allegedly, <laughs> he reports it. He's full, he's full of shit. Anyone who knows Eric Bischoff, and believe you me, I know Eric Bischoff, knows that one of the things he enjoys most is describing his antagonist, Vince Russo, in a negative fashion. Episode 4 now, Bash of the Beach 2000. Eric gets plenty of opportunity to partake on this endeavor. Here we learn of first Russo and Bischoff's meeting, as well as hear a clip of Eric giving his opinion on the infamous bro's booking ability and style. I, I met Russo at a little restaurant, actually where I um, kept my airplane. I w- it was over in Kennesaw, Georgia. And I wanted to meet him somewhere where, you know, it wouldn't be obvious. Not that anybody knew who Vince Russo was because he, <laughs> he had, no, 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 I don't mean that. That's no, not, I'm, I'm that's, just laughing at what a douche move it is where you're like, uh, come meet me at my private hangar. You pee on. No, no, I, no, I didn't meet, no, I, I didn't, I didn't meet him at my private hangar. I'm, I'm saying I met him at a restaurant that was like near, near the airport, near my private hangar. There you go. But, I, but I did that because I didn't want. You know, Russo wasn't, a, he hadn't been on camera. It wasn't like I was worried, you know, that I was sitting down having a meeting with, you know, Vince McMahon or Stone Cold Steve Austin or The Undertaker where people in Atlanta would see it and go, oh my God, did you see them? You know, we'd re- be reading about it on the internet. Nobody knew who Russo was in terms of what he looked like. But I, I just wanted it to be discreet. I didn't want the off chance that somebody from Turner or somebody from WCW would see us meeting. So I asked him to meet me up where I kept my plane, which is about 30 miles north of Atlanta. And we sat down um, 
and had coffee. And he, you know, Vince Russo is, you know, and this is his, this is one of the reasons I think he's been able to perpetrate the kind of creative crimes he's been able to perpetrate for so long. He's a very likable guy. Yeah, incredibly likable, very charming when he wants to be. I've, I've I've had several interactions with him. I like him. I know you don't, but I mean, I like. He's always been cool to me. You like him because you don't really know him. Okay. But, and I felt the same way. I was like, you know, this guy's pretty cool. You know, he's got that, you know, blue collar New York kind of down to earth. You know, you you see, he seems like he's being really transparent and honest and. You know, he's just so he's a very charming guy. And I thought, well, what the hell? You know, I don't have to like somebody to work with him. I just have to trust him. And and I thought, well, this guy, you know, I kind of half asked my first impression was I think I could like this guy, and he doesn't give me any reason not to trust him. So hell yeah, we'll try to make it work. But I still felt like we needed to have a plan, and that's why I kind of kept myself under wraps for a while. They wrote in the book there that Russo got mad and quit again on June 15th. And this time he was really upset over Lex Luger, Kimberly, and Elizabeth that he'd sent them all home earlier and had no plans to ever use them again. And that really was sort of what got the, uh, the problem going. Do you remember there being that sort of being the catalyst, the straw that broke the camel's back, something with Luger, Kimberly, and Elizabeth? Absolutely not. The, 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 the straw that broke my back or my camel's back was what happened at bash at the beach. I was done after that. No, this is before that, that was June 15th. What I was referencing before he left and sort of came back. And I don't know that I really even knew that the, the reason he left and then was, was gone. Nah, that was, that was bullshit excuse. The reason he left is because I was pressuring him to come up with a fucking plan. That's why he left. The reason he left was the same reason he left in TNA. And the same reason he melted down there was because he's only, he's a one trick pony with nothing under the hood who doesn't understand how to tell a story other than the story that he wants to tell in a given match. He's, he's a clusterfuck finish guy that is passionate about one idea that has no idea how to connect it to the rest of the story. He just doesn't, he's not a writer. It would be like me calling myself an astronaut because I have a, private pilot's license. You know, he wrote, you know, he was a writer in a, in a goofy wrestling magazine. He conned himself into being in the creative position in WWE. And then he conned himself again in WCW and in, in TNA. But the guy does not have a, a, a creative bone in his body in terms of a long-term story. I'm not suggesting he doesn't have good ideas, momentary ideas, but that doesn't make you a writer. That just makes you, you know, an idea person. He's not a writer. And the pressure that I put on him to tell me a three, a three month story, an arc, you know, a beginning, a middle and an end. Every fucking book you ever read has a beginning and a middle and an end. Every movie that you watch, if you watch a movie that's 90 minutes, the the first 20 minutes of that is act one. You know, act two is the largest portion of the movie and act three is about the same length as act one. It's a beginning and a middle and an end. You set up the story, you create the stakes in the middle of the story in act two, and then you pay it off and you show us the journey in act three. It's really simple shit. It's not that hard to figure out. 
every single story that's ever been told is based on one of seven simple stories from the beginning of fucking time. And Vince Russo couldn't grasp that. That's why he cracked. That's why he cratered. That's why he went home. And the fact that he blamed it on other people is just representative of his fucking whiny shit. <laughs> episode 5 now on the DX Invasion of Nitro. It was an episode based on an idea that Eric says he wished that he had thought of, but maybe his recollection is a little hazy. And when something like that happens, Eric's buddy Conrad is there to press him, pin him down, and if that doesn't work, get him to scream. This clip features just such a moment with one of the most memorable quotes of the show as Eric truly learns what time it is. Uh, so let's keep going here and, and talk about, you know, your memories of that day. And so you're saying you didn't know they were there. You know, nobody really knew. And then you find out they are there. How did you find out who told you? Where were you? What was going on at the time? I was in the center of the ring when this all went down. I believe I was cutting a promo in, in the ring. And I remember, uh, Annette Yothers, who was, uh, she was kind of a floor director. She worked really close with Craig Leathers and, you know, she was very instrumental in, you know, pulling, the, helping to pull the whole thing off. And I had an IFB in my ear, but as was always the case, especially in the scope, cause it was a small arena. It was a little hard to hear the truck, especially when you're in the middle of a promo. And I remember, you know, the truck was probably trying to, to get my attention and I might've just been ignoring them because I was in the middle of my, my promo. Um, and this, this I wasn't done. Net. This uh, wasn't done live, right? I mean, you're saying you're just doing a walkthrough that day, doing a promo in the ring. No, I'm not doing a promo. I'm doing it. I'm in the ring. But that's what I'm saying, though. This was taped in the afternoon. It's daytime. So, I mean, there wouldn't have been a that, crowd. That there. part of it, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know anything about that. My recollection is that that went down while we were, while we were alive on the show. Well, but that's it, how I remember it. It would have been fucking daytime. I mean, the, the video is, is daytime and, and this would have been evening obviously. So it would have been dark. Um, but either way you were in the ring working through a promo or doing a walkthrough or whatever, when you hear. And so when you come out of the ring, you it's know, over. it's over, it's already happened. It's over. Okay. Kevin Nash says he drove by it and didn't even realize it was DX. He just thought it was like crazy fans. Booker T says he didn't know about it till it actually happened. And, and Scott Armstrong says that, you know, as we mentioned earlier, he knew something was going to happen. The WWF might be doing something, but no one knew what. And, and again, I guess we should mention Scott Armstrong's brother is road dog. Uh, Waltman and Hunter were, were sort of on record as saying they thought the right idea was to go straight into the building first. And that that would have been smarter than sort of teasing it and giving WCW an opportunity to close the door. But Bruce Pritchard would tell a different story and says he was told that legally they couldn't go into the building. So that's the reason they sort of played it out the way they did. But Nash is on the other side of the door, according to his story with Scott Hall, trying to convince the guy at the arena to open that big garage door up. Okay. Now, wait a minute. See, this is why it's so hard for me. So in one breath, we're saying Kevin Nash didn't know what was going on. He drive, he drove by it and saw it. And now all of a sudden he's inside of the building trying to open the door, which is it? Well, here's what happens. As you recall, they're, they're, they're posted out front interviewing fans for an extended period of time. They're, they're shown doing promos and driving up to the scene. And then eventually later is when they try to come down the ramp. So they had been shooting all that other shit as Kevin drove past, because it's not like they just drove straight for the door. 
if that makes sense. Um, no, it doesn't. I mean, I, I mean, I, whatever. Which part don't you understand, Eric? They didn't drive tra- so, straight down the fucking ramp. They sat out front and interviewed fans and did promos first. No, I'm just trying to get the timing. I'm trying to put this together in my head. Well, and we go well, from Kevin Nash it, it was driving by and not know what's going on to all of a sudden in this conversation, Kevin Nash is trying to get somebody to open up the door. So whatever. Sorry for being you know a little confused. Yeah, it was 20 years confused. ago, and the way you're laying it out is just a little bit fucked up. But let's continue. What's more fucked up is that you think you're in the promo with fans and it's goddamn daytime that is pretty fucked up it's daytime how are you doing a promo (laughs) it's fucking daytime eric it's 20 years ago they're on the east coast it's an eastern time zone they're not in fucking california it's clearly nighttime when you're cutting a promo How do I know it's daytime when I'm inside of a building? I'm trying to remember. Fuck, I'm trying to put together something that happened 20 freaking years ago. I'm doing my goddamn best. Let's try to stay in a timeline if we can. Okay. All right. Fine. Uh, What was happening on the other side of the door as far as you heard it? Since you say Nash and Hall weren't fucking there, but you wouldn't know. I didn't say they weren't there. I was trying to figure out where they were because you said they were driving by. Would you let go of this shit? Okay. What's going on on the other side of the door as far as you've been led to believe? I know. I'm in the ring. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. One of the hallmarks of WCW were the what-the-fuck moments. Believe you me, I had plenty of those. Just wasn't able to say those on the air. And we're talking about moments on screen, off screen, and sometimes in a good way, but usually not. Here we finally get an explanation and some understanding of one of the most what-the-fuck situations of the Monday Night Wars. From Episode 6 on Chris Jericho, we learn from Eric's perspective what exactly happened with the start and stop Chris Jericho-Goldberg feud in WCW. Chris wrote in his book that it was Terry Taylor who told him he'd be wrestling Goldberg. And at the time he's TV champion, we should remind you that Goldberg here is of course the world champion. And when he finds out he's working Goldberg, he thinks it's strange that he's going to be in a three minute throwaway match like this on pay-per-view when he's the TV champion. But Terry explained, no, you're not facing the real Goldberg, but a quote unquote midget version of him instead. And he asked him why. And he said, no reason. I just thought you'd have some fun with it. So that was sort of the idea is WCW, at least Terry Taylor had sort of realized, Hey, we're doing comedy here. Let's double down on the comedy. But I get that in hindsight, maybe bill didn't see the humor and probably blamed Jericho for some of this. Tell us what bill's reaction was to this, uh, Goldberg squash here for Jericho. He, He was, he was hot. He was hot. I mean, I, I, I got an earful. And a face full. <laughs> I mean, he was in my face. He was hot. And again, you know, it's easy to talk about this stuff 20 odd years later, but at that time, remember again, put it in context, how green Bill Goldberg was right at that time. Bill came into a shark tank, right? And he, he got over other than the rock, you know, or, or, yeah, other than The Rock, nobody's gotten over as fast, as big as Bill Goldberg at that time. And it was a lot for him. He didn't have a decade you know, or more's worth of wrestling political experience. 
he didn't have a comfort level with the formula and, and could predict how the audience would take things. Um, so he was really easily tipped over, especially when you had guys who were fucking with him. When you had a Scott Hall in his ear going, bro, I don't know why they're, man, I wouldn't let them do that to me. And I'm not saying Scott did that, but that type of thing was very typical. Or any number of other people that were in his ear and influencing him because he he didn't have his own basis of knowledge and experience to rely upon. Or Hulk Hogan would have pulled him aside. And Hulk would have pulled him aside and said, hey, Bill, just telling you. I would have never let them do something like that to Hulk Hogan when Hulk Hogan was first getting over that something like that would make Bill go up in flames. So you can imagine how Bill reacted to that. And he reacted the next day in Greenville, South Carolina. He says he saw Jericho wrote, I saw Goldberg in the backstage area. He came up to me with fire in his eyes and a defiant grin and said, well, Jericho, I hope it was worth it. He asked what he meant. And he says, people have been calling me all day and laughing at me. Well, I don't do the comedy bullshit that you do. And I just want you to know you're going to pay the price for it. And Jericho wrote that he's sort of surprised by this. I mean, they both loved hockey. They went to a hockey game together. He thought they got along and he thought he would have gotten a kick out of it. But he says, quote, as a result of the backstage vultures that were clouding his brain with manipulation, drooling at the thought of being one to end his streak. Here we are. He says, I just work here, Bill. I wish I had the power to book matches, but I don't. And he sort of stomps off Goldberg does and says, I hope it was worth it. And of course, Jericho is now going to keep this angle going, whether it's his idea or WCW's. And I'm sure we'll talk about that, but he's bragging in the ring that night on the show that Jericho won Goldberg zero and challenges him to a match. Of course, Goldberg doesn't answer. So he wins by count out and starts saying Goldberg zero Jericho two. And he's no longer calling him Goldberg. He's calling him Greenberg and saying things like, who's your daddy Greenberg? Who's your daddy? And people are really ready for a match here, but it doesn't happen. And he runs into Goldberg at uh, an airport and Goldberg demands. He stopped doing the angle quote. I don't do comedy. And he tried to explain that he's not going to do it and the fans are digging it and he doesn't want to really pull back and WCW allegedly is okay with this. And they're even advertising Goldberg versus Jericho on the September 28th nitro and Goldberg's there and just lays waste to the Jericho security force. And we're sort of not really getting the payoff we imagined with there being some sort of a pay-per-view build or whatever. What's your relationship like with dealing with Goldberg through this process? Is he sort of pushing back on all this? Did you have to talk him off the ledge a few times? What can you tell us? Yes. I had to talk him off the ledge a lot and the relationship between Bill and I had, had been getting strained uh, up to that point. And again, it's because the stakes were getting higher. There were more people in Bill's ear. He was getting less and less secure because he went out now and instead of just going out and eating people, there was more and more story, you know, being suggested to him from time to time. It was a very tough time for Bill. It, it just, it was. And now to have this kind of thing happening. I mean, I think anybody else that had been in the business for five or 10 years, I mean, it's Chris was getting him over, right? 
I mean, he really was. Chris was doing a favor, and so was WCW. But Bill didn't have the experience to see it that way. His perspective was all fucked up, and it would he would get absolutely impossible to be around. And of course, the match is going to happen. And Jericho wrote in his book that you're the one who breaks the news to him. And when he says, what's the story for the match going to be? You said something like story, the same story. Goldberg always tells he beats you and pins you with the jackhammer in about three minutes. And Jericho says he thought he'd entered the twilight zone. Like the previous six weeks of angles hadn't happened. And he says, what about our angle? The fans are really into it. And you allegedly said there never was an angle. And if there was, it ends tonight. And he's sort of just taken aback by this, that this can't be real, that they've just thrown away all of this, that he felt like was really strong work, but that's the plan on October 8th. Um, there's a, a, a segment on thunder where backstage Jericho slamming on Goldberg's door. Goldberg's not there. And it's announced as if Jericho's going to take on Goldberg later in the show. And. Jericho does an interview with, of course, his bodyguard and Tony Schiavone. And then he tells the referee, Mark Curtis to get well. And he calls out Goldberg Goldberg's music plays, but he never shows up. And Jericho has the referee, put his hand in that, in the air and ring the bell as if he were the winner. I mean, it is sort of weird that, you know, the match happens. It's a squash. It's over really before it gets started, but he still continues the angle even after is this just too many chefs in the kitchen? How does this thing piss off one of the top talents, but yet we're still playing with it a little bit and we're not, well, there's no pain. There, there's, there, there's a layer of complexity that wasn't revealed in that book. Um, and we touched on it, you know, Chris Jericho was a heel. He was playing a heel. It was a cool heel and it was an entertaining heel, just like the NWO was in some respects, sometimes in many respects, but he was still a heel. Bill Goldberg was still Bill Goldberg at that point. There was no way that match was going to end any other way than the heel poking the bear, getting his heat, poking the bear next week, getting more heat and continuing to get that heat until the bear finally met him in the ring and the heel got beat. Right. That's the formula. Sure. Chris didn't want to do that formula. Chris didn't see it that way. And it became a little, it became an issue. Well, Chris, Chris, Chris wanted a legitimate angle, not a comedic angle, not the one that you just laid out to me. He wanted to be figured in with, with Bill Goldberg in particular at that time. And we weren't ready for that yet. Meltzer would even put in here that. Goldberg had nixed the idea, even after all the angles that had sort of started it because he just didn't want to do anything with Jericho and Meltzer would freestyle that Jericho was offered a program with Kidman, but Jericho Guerrero and Benoit Malenko were all trying to move away from the cruiserweight division because they didn't want that stigma and they were putting pressure on guys to sign contracts. This is all directly from the observer. Do you remember, you know, being like, Hey, sorry, you can't work with Goldberg, but what about Kidman? No, I don't remember that. Let's talk about Halloween havoc. 1998 Jericho retains the TV title, beating Raven in seven minutes and 49 seconds. It gets three stars here. Uh, it is sort of, um, 
I guess it's the, a move in the right direction because he's working with heavyweights, but it does feel a little bit like a consolation prize since he's not with uh, Goldberg, which is what he wanted to do. The very next week on Nitro, November 2nd, uh, he is doing an interview wearing a Goldberg t-shirt and he's putting over Goldberg and talking about how he used to be a football player. And later in the show, he goes to a draw with Kidman. The next week on Nitro, Jericho does an interview running down Bill Goldberg. And then they show Goldberg arriving at the building, watching Jericho run him down on the monitor. And instead of going out there, he wastes valuable time destroying all the furniture uh, backstage. And when he finally comes out, he wastes Jericho with a tackle on the floor. And uh, for some reason, as we've talked about, he just didn't want to work the feud. And that's allegedly sort of the blow off here. Uh, he gets a win over Prince Iakea a few days later on uh, Thunder. And the big meeting about all this Goldberg stuff goes down on November 9th. And it happens before Nitro. And he says, You're going to lose. He says that you said something like, You're going to lose to Goldberg, and that's it. And his thinking at the time was, quote, I didn't give a shit at that point because no matter what anybody else thought that angle was a moneymaker and I was determined to live or die with it. If WCW didn't take it as far as it could go, I might as well quit anyway. If they didn't see this feud as a draw, then nothing I would ever do in the future would be either quote. I'm not losing tonight. And he says, you said angrily go in my office right now. And he says, you must've suspected that you were going to question the match because Goldberg was already in your office all along with a very pissed off Hulk Hogan. And he says that some serious shit was about to go down. And he says, you said, this has gone on long enough. We've accommodated you enough tonight. You're losing to bill. And the three of them wait for my response. I wanted to lose to bill. I just wanted to do it right. And people want to see him kick my ass and they they'll pay to see it. And then he pleads his case to Hogan using language. He knew he'd understand quote, I thought this business was about making money. You've done it better than anyone. Hulk, this match will make money. Hogan didn't disagree, but said it's never bad to lose to the champion. And Jericho says, or Goldberg says, rather, I'm sick of doing this comedy shit. You could never last in the ring with me. I'm the guy who stands in fire for my ring entrance. I'm the guy who beat Hogan for the title. And he says, you're the guy who would go down right now. If I kicked you in the nuts. And so you jump in the middle and say, okay, let's not get carried away. What do you want to do? What's your idea? Do you remember before we keep going here, this three-way meeting and that basically being how it got started or is Jericho using some creative license here? I remember the night. I remember the debate. Um, if Chris says Hulk was in the room, you know, I, I can't remember clearly enough to suggest he wasn't, it would make sense. So I tend to believe that, that Hulk was there. Remember, you know, as I said earlier on, Bill was very insecure when he was very confident in himself in every way, except for psychology, uh, when it came to the wrestling business. So he ended up leaning on certain people. Hulk Hogan was clearly one of them, especially by that time. Hulk Hogan, by that time had introduced his own attorney, Henry Holmes to Bill, so Hulk was kind of taking Bill under his wing, so to speak. So it makes sense that, that Hulk would have been there. Um, so we'll take Chris's version of how that all went down as being 100% accurate. And I do remember the tension that occurred that night, 
however it went down word for word. Um, but keep in mind, you know, one of the issues that I had personally, and one of the reasons why I didn't fight harder um, to support Chris is because Bill wasn't capable of going out and having the kind of match that Chris wanted to have. Right. right. Bill was still Bill Goldberg. That match was going to be a clusterfuck. Yeah, A, because Bill just didn't have the experience, and B, because of the way Bill was wired. Bill would have gone out there so tense and so tight and so pissed off that I don't know how, you know, as talented as Chris Jericho was, um, I think he was overestimating his own abilities based on his desire to, to do what he wanted to do. Because I don't think he could have gone out there and had a match that he would have been proud of with Bill Goldberg. There was a lot of reasons why that match wasn't going to happen. And it wasn't all because I didn't believe in Chris. It just wasn't the right match. So Jericho says that, you know, you guys say, well, Hey, what's your fucking idea? And he lays it out. Okay. I'm going to come out here and trash him. And Oakland's going to say, you know, we, everybody knows Bill's not here, but then Bill shows up at on the Tron comes down, spears him down the aisle exactly as it was. And that sets up a match at the pay-per-view and he loses at the pay-per-view. He just wanted to work with Goldberg on the pay-per-view and allegedly everybody likes the idea, but Goldberg says something like that's all well and good, but I'm supposed to have the next pay-per-view off. So instead the, uh, the plan is world war three. And instead of Goldberg working with Chris Jericho, Jericho works with Bobby Duncan jr. 13 minutes and 19 seconds. What would have been the harm? And having the blow off happen at world war three, instead of having Jericho work with Bobby Duncan fucking junior. Did the blow off ever happen? Just the spear down the aisle. And that was it. I'll go back to what I just said. You know, you're asking a question two different ways or three different ways. I told you earlier on, there's just no way that that match was ever going to happen. Bill wasn't capable but, I mean, of having, it's really, go ahead. Why go not ahead. squash? I mean, why not just book the standard? Everybody know. I mean, we all know he's going to get squashed. Like the expectation was not a 20 minute match, but a fucking squash. Do you think Jericho did, 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 did Chris ever say that to you? Or I mean, not to you, but is, is there any, in his book, did Chris say, all I want to do is go out and get squashed on a pay-per-view. No, he wanted a match. He wanted an angle with bill. He wanted to get in the ring and have a match with bill. He got squashed and you he know, wasn't happy with that. Allegedly, let, the me, let me correct that. He does say, and then we wrestle at world war three and he destroys me in the most entertaining squash match of all time. But still, yeah. you're saying that's not really what he was saying. He wanted a real it's, fucking match. It, it, and it just was the chemistry wasn't there between those two. Right. It just wasn't there. And that, by the way, it's not, you know, Bill being a bitch and Chris being wrong or me, you know, pandering to Bill or Hulk stirring up shit. There are times when certain talents don't match. The chemistry isn't right. Ric Flair, Rick Root. I mean, there are times there are people. They just don't work well together. And given what had gone down with Bill and Chris in the comedy, which wasn't Chris's fault, he was doing what he was asked to do. Um, Bill overreacted to it, but it doesn't matter. It just, the chemistry wasn't there. He says that the fact that he couldn't even get a pay-per-view squash with Goldberg showed him that WCW didn't really see him as a moneymaker or a big league player. And his attitude about the company sort of started to become quote, 
The same as when you call a girl 10 times and she never calls you back. You start, you start off hoping she'll call. Then you get bummed out, then desperate. Then you realize it's time to move on and give up. Had he called me back any time before the Goldberg angle was kiboshed, I would have signed. But the moment I found out that the angle was shit canned, I wasn't interested in being part of WCW no mo. Of course, the day I found out the angle had been dropped like a baby was the day Eric showed up with a contract for me to sign. He took it out of his little knapsack and told me to sign it on the spot. I hemmed and hawed and told him I needed to have a lawyer look over it first. Once I made up my mind to not sign the deal, I called Vince Russo. I told him that I wanted out and he suggested a meeting with Vince McMahon himself. So he made arrangements for me to fly to Connecticut in a top secret meeting at Vince's house. In the weeks leading up to the meeting, I avoided Bischoff like he had leprosy or was a cruiserweight. If he was walking down the hall, I duck, dip, dive, and dodge into a nearby dressing room. He wasn't stupid, and I'm sure he must have suspected something was amiss. Finally, he caught up with me in Chicago at the United Center, and the first words out of his mouth were, have you signed your contract yet? I started, well, my lawyer still hasn't, and he interrupted me to say, get it back from your lawyer and get it signed next week. He was on to me and the jig was up. What do you remember about, you know, him sort of playing hokey pokey with signing a contract here and it seemingly happening at the same time as this Goldberg situation? It probably was happening at the same time, but I didn't get, I, I didn't, I don't think I would have, you know, I don't want to call Chris a liar. I'm not doing that, but it's, it would be a hundred percent uncharacteristic of me to pull a contract out, put it in somebody's face and say, now sign it. Right. No, nobody did that. Right. Nobody did that. Nobody did it. And I certainly wouldn't have expected Chris to do it. So right off the bat, I'm kind of throwing a flag on that one. Um, just the way it started out. Uh, I do remember being pretty anxious I do remember being concerned because we had plenty of conversations. It was clear to me that Chris didn't get what Chris wanted. Chris wanted that pay-per-view match with Bill Goldberg. He felt he deserved it. He felt that it was money. It's what he wanted for himself. He believed, I'm sure, that it was good for the company, and he didn't get what he wanted. And I knew he was, I knew he was unhappy, and I suspected that he was going to leave. So... I would say 80% of everything that, that he laid out in that book is probably pretty accurate. The part I'm not going to buy is that I pulled a contract out of my knapsack and said, here, sign it. That I'm not buying that or, or that I expected to have it, you know, two days later or three days later. And I'm, and again, I'm, I'm not to sound like a pussy, but it, it just every time I hear Chris, you know, and I'm sure, you know, maybe if he, Chris and I have talked about a lot of things in the last couple of years that we both, you know, look back and reflect on and going, holy shit. You know, we kind of palm ourselves in the forehead, you know, thinking about some of the things that we've said and done. Um, and we both have a much different perspective on things now than we did 20 years ago. But it still kind of bothers me to hear Chris, even if it was five or 10 years ago, shit all over the cruiserweights by saying something like I avoided him like a cruiserweight because I, I just, you know, that's like me being pissed off at Vern Gagne for giving me an opportunity to get into the wrestling business. Right. I just don't get that. That that's, that's a, that's a level of disrespect that I just can't relate to. It's very hard these days to think of Eric Bischoff without thinking of Hulk Hogan. On episode seven on the American dream, dusty roads, Eric calls upon his other friend to do a run in on 83 weeks. 
This clip not only shows the reverence that Hulk, Eric Conrad, and myself have for the great Dusty Rhodes, but gives us a reminder that above all else, Conrad is just a fan. But speaking of third man, I, you know, that's, a, that's kind of a running theme, isn't it? It's always a third man. Well, I mean, there is, I mean, I guess that's probably our first, it was our first show, and the third man is maybe what you're most famous for with the NWO and you know, we sort of joke about on Tony's show that we're like the uh, six-man tag team champions of podcasting because we've got Lois Shivani, and we got to figure out like how to get your wife on here, or Garrett, or maybe Russo. We need a we need a third man here to do run-ins occasionally. Stand by. Come on, Conrad. You know who the third man is, brother. Holy shit. Ladies and got, gentlemen, what are you guys doing? Cussing on the radio like this, man. <laughs> well, you can say whatever you want. Is this, is this an, imp- is this an imposter? Is this Will Sasso? Is this Bruce Pritchard? No, this isn't what? Will Sasso, brother. This is, this is Hulk Hogan, brother. Who else would be sitting here on Clearwater beach, sucking down beers with Eric Bischoff, brother. Come on, dude. I mean, oh. come on. It's not, and I do that impersonation much better than will because I am the real thing. Okay. Wow. Mr. Hogan. What an honor. Thank you for being on the show today, man. This is, uh, well, well, one of the reasons I wanted to be on the show was, uh, I talked with Eric during the week and he told me you guys are going to be talking about dusty Rose, American dream, baby. And dusty was just the man here in Florida had a huge influence on my life. And, you know, I was the one that said, Eric, if you ever, Want me to come on the podcast, or if you ever wanted me to talk about Dusty Rhodes, I'd love to do it. So he kind of like opened the door for me to be on the show with you guys. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for coming on, man. I, I, I'm not as prepared as I might normally be if we knew we had the greatest of all time here, but you brought it up growing up in Florida, Dusty Rhodes was sort of the man down there. What are your memories of seeing Dusty when maybe you were a younger fellow? Well, I mean, you know, it was like. Growing up, you know, when I hit, you know, junior high school and right into high school, you know, Dusty wasn't that much older than me, but he was, you know, and I, how old was Dusty when he passed away? I'm not even sure. 69. No, he has got to be a little little older than that. But anyway, I'm going to be 65 in August, but all I know is when I was in ninth and 10th grade, he was wrestling in Florida here. So I guess he started young, but the thing was. We watched him every single week on Florida Championship Wrestling with Gordon Sully. And if he was not on the show, if he didn't do an interview, we were just pissed. Because and when I was in high school, you know, I had lunch and then I had study hall, then I had shop class, then I had PE. So the last half of the day pretty much was a waste and I didn't have to do anything. So we would either wrestle at PE or wrestle in the shop class or uh, on Wednesday afternoons, Tuesday night was wrestling in Tampa at the armory. And I would go down there and watch dusty roads every Tuesday. And then Wednesday, right off Kennedy Boulevard on Albany Avenue, a place called the sportatorium where I eventually got my leg broken. My first day down there, I used to sneak down to the sportatorium and skip school on Wednesdays to go watch him film TV there. So he hooked me from day one when I first started watching him. And if it wasn't for Dusty Rhodes, I would have never had the courage to cross the line and start approaching the wrestlers and say, hey, brother, do you, is there any chance maybe I could work out with you guys? Because I used to follow these guys around everywhere, 
from the cafeterias to the arenas and everything. But Dusty Rhodes was the reason. What was it about Dusty that had that magnetism for you? Well, you know, we had uh, the promoter, Eddie Graham, and his son was a, a year ahead of me in high school, and so was Steve Kern. And uh, we had a bunch of really good wrestlers here, Bob Orton Jr. We had Bob Orton's dad, the big O. We had the great Malenko. And what was so cool about it is at that time, Vince McMahon and Vern Gagne used to share their main event wrestlers, and they'd send them down to Florida like uh, Bob Backlund would come through here, superstar Billy Graham, Crusher Purdue, Ivan Koloff, all the main event wrestlers would come through Florida, and they would all spoon-feed Dusty because he was there. He was like the Hulk Hogan or the John Cena at the time or you know, I don't, I don't mean to put myself in the mix. I'm just trying to explain that sure. he was the top baby face and, and all these guys would spoon feed him. So Dusty was postured as the hero, you know, when I was a kid, plus he, he could fill the bill. He could, you know, fill that spot they gave him. It wasn't like, you know, he was weak in any areas. He was a main event guy. You know, he, he sold his ass off. He bled like a pig. He could talk. You know, what he did in the ring as far as his work, his work was on point. So he had us reeled in all the way. And that's what really kind of like made me love the business so much was watching Dusty work. And his interviews were just over the top. They were just so on point and they related to the common man, you know, and to the guys at, at home and to my dad that worked construction and all of his kids growing up. So he was the ultimate package for all of us to watch. And that's what got me hooked was dusty. I'm glad you mentioned the promos because I think, you know, if you're really paying attention, you can see that maybe you had a little bit of dusty roads influence. You know, he talked about the common man, like he talked about, and you talked about your Hulkamaniacs and just the over the top presentation. There had to be some similarities. How big of an influence was he on your interview style? Well, he was a huge influence. I mean, you know, the, the weirdest thing when I went back to work for the WWE I can't remember when it was a few years ago before I got fired. They, um, asked me to go down to the performance center the first day. I mean, I hadn't even been to a raw. I hadn't been, I hadn't seen Vince. I hadn't, you know, been around anybody. I just talked to triple H and we made a decision when I left TNA to go back. And the first thing they asked me to do was go to the performance center. And, you know, I wasn't even back in the door yet, but they wanted me to go to the performance center. So I went there and when I talked to all the people that were breaking in, I kind of told them, it's really great that you guys are innovative and doing a bunch of new things, but don't be afraid to steal stuff from guys from the past that works, you know? And I said, you know, like I heard Billy Graham say one time, I pulled the bumper off a Cadillac and it went in one ear and out the other for the fans, but it was so good. I said, Hey brother, when I see uh, King Kong Bundy, I'm going to pull the bumper off a Cadillac Jack and beat him over the head with it. So I said it so it so people would never forget it. And it was just part of Billy Graham's rap, and it was just one of his many one-liners, and he had a 1,000 of them. And also with Dusty Rhodes, when I saw him stick that finger up one time and shake that finger when they raised his arm, I stole that from him. So everything from the rap, a lot of the stuff in the ring, the way he sold the finger that I always would put up on the third time. That was all dusty roads, brother. So he was a huge influence on me. You know, I'm glad you mentioned, uh, being with him at the performance center, because I think it's pretty well known that he was teaching promo class at the time and such a big influence on them. Was that probably one of your last interactions with dusty? 
you know, seeing him at the PC. Yeah, that was, that one's one of the last, you know, interactions. And it was, it was tough for me because, um, when I broke in the business, he was so far involved in, in the finishes and being tight with Eddie Graham and helping run the business here in Florida. I really didn't have a chance to get to know him because I was just a jabroni on the outside trying to get bookings, you know, and, and get going. And then, you know, things kind of turned around for me. And by the time I got up to New York and I was the main event guy in New York, it was weird to have like Mike Graham and Dusty Rhodes come in and be on the undercard. It was kind of like an awkward situation for me. But then, you know, when he was coming up to New York and he started working there full time, we got a chance to know each other and become friends. And, uh, you know, he helped me even then, even when I was in the middle of that Hulkamania run, he'd hit me with suggestions and ideas that were spot on. And I had a chance to work with him in Japan a lot, but you know, it was tough going to the performance center and seeing him those last couple of times. Cause he was in such a good mood. He was so helpful. And you know, he was even my wife, Jennifer goes, Oh my God, I really like that guy. His energy is just so good. You know, and then all of a sudden for him not to be with us, that's kind of like a tough one, you know, because he had such a great influence on me. Well, let's talk about, you know, when you mentioned going to New York and, and he came up and obviously at that point, Hulkamania was running wild. It is a bit of a, uh, a shift because dusty had always sort of been the, the head honcho and now he's one of the boys. Do you remember there being some concern as to whether or not he would be able to sort of fit in or because of dusty's personality, he just won everybody over. You know, I really didn't have a handle on what was going on and how, now that I look at it from 40,000 feet, I get it. You know, Vince had a vision for what he wanted. It was this marketing dream that he wanted to put in place and make the wrestlers more than just wrestlers, make them huge commodities where the merchandise and the, and, and the cartoons, you know, he would make or generate as much revenue as he would with the, the live events. And when he brought Dusty Rhodes up, and I was so used to seeing Dusty Rhodes, the American dream, you know, the, the cowbell matches and the strap matches with superstar Billy Graham and Ivan Koloff in the garden that when Vince brought him up and put the polka dots on him, my first thought was, is this a test or is this, you know, is Vince trying to run the guy off or is, or is he, or is he, is this an insult, you know, but you know, Vince was serious about it. And when he put Sapphire with dusty, you know, Dusty embraced the thing. And if it would have been me, I wasn't smart enough at the time to realize what was going on with those guys. I would have probably been a jackass and pushed back against it. But Dusty was smart enough to know that he need to, needed to go with it and work with it. And he did. I don't think anybody else could have pulled it off like he did. You know, but Dusty fit right in with what Vince was trying to do. And it was more, instead of just one main event talent, Vince was trying to create a whole bunch of main event talents up there. And when you're running three shows a night, he needed to have those cards stacked and he wanted to get dusty in a position, you know, with, with this new gimmick that would work with the toys and the merchandise and the cartoons and whatever else he was trying to come up with. So, you know, you sort of touched on it there. A lot of the guys through the years have thought that putting dusty and polka dots was a rib. You thought it was a rib at first too. Oh yeah. I thought it was because I grew up watching him as the American dream with the cowboy boots on, you know, and, and you you know how dusty was so sure my my thought was why change something that works so well you know right and uh vince vince had a different vision you know for dusty and dusty 
you know, embraced it and went with it and it worked. Did you ever have a chance to work a match with dusty Rhodes? It doesn't feel like you would have. Well, I had a, I had a chance in Japan. Oh yeah. Let's talk about that over in Japan. How was dusty Rhodes received to the Japanese fans? A lot of us younger fans may have never even seen that those tapes. Well, you're, you're either over or you're not in Japan. And, uh, I got fortunate enough that when I went over there, I got teamed up with Stan Hansen. And just because I was teamed up with Stan Hansen, um, the guy jeans, the Americans, as, as they call them, um, you either get over or you don't, you know, you just go through the motions and get your money and go home and, you know, maybe they'll ask you back and maybe they won't. But if you get over, it can be a home there. I mean, it's kind of like now with the young bucks and all those guys that are tearing Japan up and with Chris Jericho, these guys could, you know, make great livings in Japan if they want to stay over there. And when dust in like when a Noki would come out, like I got real hot as a heel over there and I wrestled Antonio Noki a lot in singles matches. And when I went out, they threw all those paper things in the ring. And I mean, I got over like Rover. I was over like crazy. And then when a Noki would come in and you would listen to the crowd yell for him, then you knew what over really was. I mean, I thought I was over. And then when Anoki came out, I went, okay, now I know what really being over is. <laughs> and, and for some crazy reason, Abdul the Butcher and Dusty Rhodes, when they came out, those sons of guns were over, man. Dusty was, especially when he'd break down before he dropped that elbow on you and he'd stick his butt out and he'd stick his fingers out sideways, how he'd break down in that pose he'd do and he'd do the shake, shake, rattle and roll and hit you with the elbow the Japanese fans would go crazy. So I had the honor of working with him in tag matches and a couple single matches over there. And I think if you YouTube it, you could probably see him, but no, it was, it was a lot of fun being in the ring with him. And it's just so weird to be in the ring with a guy that I grew up idolizing and watching. It was just such an honor. You know, what did you learn from dusty? Is there one thing that you could take away? You sort of mentioned when you guys were working for Vince together, that he would even make suggestions to you that were spot on, you know, what, what were some of those examples? If you can share any with us, if, is there one thing you can sort of say, I'll never forget. He told me this or that, whatever it may be. Well, you know, sometimes people say something that, you know, it will stick with me, you know, and when dusty told me, you know, he goes, Hogan, just listen to the crowd. They'll tell you what to do, you know, and there's so many old timers, you know, that just listen to that crowd that, uh, when dusty said that, that was like the gospel to me, you know, because I would see guys sitting in the corner and, you know, talking about their matches and stuff like that. And, you know, Stan Hansen, and I would just sit there and we just want to know the finish. We didn't want to know what the match was. I carried that with me. You know, I never was a guy that would, uh, <clears throat> sit down and, and talk about matches and a lot of the old timers like that, but I got that from dusty first, you know, and, uh, it was kind of strange because WrestleMania 18, I had been working with, um, uh, God, TNA for a while. Right. And when I went, went, when I went back to, uh, WWF at the time, um, you know, Vince goes, well, if you come back here, you better bring it, you know, cause I was working with the rock and well, you know, I didn't say anything, but I, in my mind I was thinking, well, if I'm on point, you know, you're going to ask me to take it back if I'm on point, you know, but you know, he said, bring it. And it was really weird because, you know, they kind of like go over stuff up there a lot. And I really didn't like doing that, getting in the ring and going over it. And when I went down to Miami to get in the ring with the rock and kind of walk through stuff, his dad was at ringside and, uh, his dad, 
Rocky Johnson was going, Rock, just just listen to the crowd, brother, when you're in there with Hogan. Just listen to Hogan. He kind of like said the same thing that uh, you know Dusty was saying. So a lot of the old timers had that philosophy that if you knew how to work and you were a good worker, you listen to the crowd. You don't have to, you know, sit there in the back room and talk for, you know, four hours about a, you know, fifteen minute match. <laughs> well, of course, we're we're on an unfortunate anniversary here of um, Dusty Rhodes leaving us. What do you think his legacy will be with professional wrestling fans and wrestlers? Well, you know, for us that are in the business, he was the consummate professional. You know, there was no one else like him. Um, you could say he was ahead of his time. You could say whatever you wanted. I mean, I just, I just think that if you were to drop him in right now, you know, he could take Cena's place or Hogan's place or the rocks place in the main event at WrestleMania. I mean, he, he was a consummate professional, brother. He knew this business inside now. And, and I've known guys, you know, that have been in this business 25 years and they're still marks. You know, I've been around this business almost 35 years and I'm probably the biggest mark there is. You know, <laughs> you, know you, you learn something new every day. As soon as you think you're smartened up, you're a mark because nobody is smartened up. You know, you, you learn something every day. And, you know, it's I mean, I just I just think that that's his biggest you know, achievement is that he could have been a main event anywhere, anytime. And when I say anytime, I mean any time period, even now, if he was to drop in, he could, he could be the main event. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because his son, Cody Rhodes is challenging for the NWA world title this September at all in, of course, the show that he and the Bucks sort of put on with their own money, self-promoted, self-funded, sold it out. And he's in the world title match for the NWA world title. What do you think Dusty would think about that today? Man, that's amazing. You know, there were so many, I, I hate to say haters, but naysayers that said, oh, they'll never sell it out. Or never, and just to see those kids doing so well, it's just, it just makes me smile from ear to ear because those are some hardworking kids. And I mean, that's just amazing that they're pulling this off. It's, it's unbelievable. Well, Dusty would be proud. And man, we are proud that you were able to join us here today. I, I, I'm sort of caught off guard. Eric never has me speechless, but when we're in the presence of greatness, uh, I stuttered today and, and it's all because of you, Mr. Hogan, you're the reason I'm a wrestling fan. So thank you for your contributions to the business and for making a very rare appearance with us here today. Well, wait a minute, brother. You're, you're, I'm, I think you're kind of lying to me a little bit. The word on the street is you're a big Ric Flair fan, brother. Well, but I was, a Hulk, I was a Hulkamaniac Woo. long before I was about styling and profiling. Well, let me tell you something. I, in my opinion, Ric Flair is the greatest world's champion that ever walked the face of the earth. So you and I are on the same team. Well, that's awesome, man. I can't thank you enough for taking a few minutes today. And, uh, I'm going to keep busting your buddy's balls. Now that I know he has one friend in Florida, I don't have to be his friend in Alabama. I'm the only, I'm the only one he's got brother. Good talking <laughs> with you. Thank you very much, sir. Bite me. I can't believe you pulled it off, Eric. Look at this. I told you I do that third man thing pretty well. I do it better than anybody else. Don't I, I, I can't argue that at all. And uh, I learned something new today. You have another friend besides me. How about that? I know you can count all my friends on one hand and have enough <laughs> fingers left over to pick pickles off a hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great line, man. Eric Bischoff is known for many things, but perhaps his calling card and secret to his success is his irreverence for the way things have always been done. On episode 8 of 83 Weeks, Eric Bischoff explains why he felt the need to bring in Hollywood scriptwriters to help him book wrestling when Dusty Rhodes was around. 
and also in true Bischoff fashion, uses the opportunity to bash the most well-known figure in wrestling journalism once again. I'll give you a clue, FDM. One of the, the things that Meltzer sort of freestyled in The Observer is that script writers were starting to write some of the interviews for the guys and there would be more cute puns and less quote, I hate your guts and here's why interviews and Meltzer. And, and, and where, and where did Meltzer get it? So Meltzer had a fucking crystal ball or he was some other kind of psychic that was able to get inside of my head and, and be able to determine why I hired those script writers and he was, he's so fucking good. He's such an amazing, intuitive powerhouse. He was able to get inside the heads of the writers and know what they were going to write before they fucking wrote it. There's your guy. There's your buddy. I love doing this show with you. Let, let me ask though. You, you admitted right there. You did bring in script writers. What, yeah, but you didn't ask why. Do you want to know why I brought him in? Well, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say he gave you credit for this. He says, just a hunch, but that would seem to be a sign of Eric's, Eric Bischoff's power as opposed to Dusty Rhodes or Early Anderson. So what he's freestyling about whose idea it is is yours, but I do want to hear why you thought the script writers were necessary and what you try, what you wanted to overcome or change about the way those promos had been done prior to this. Okay, and, and I'm going to go there because this is a really important thing. But when when and when people are listening to this, I want them to rewind and listen to the way you set up that question. And by explaining to me how Dave Meltzer freestyled and then went on to explain that these writers were going to write this, the promos for the talent, which, by the way, that wasn't the only thing they were going to write. But they were going to write the promos for the talent and make them more comedic and then – well, well, that must be because Eric Bischoff's, you know, getting more power, so it's probably his influence. The way that was set up is one of the reasons I end up going off on shit like this, because that to me is reflects the lack of credibility in the kind of garbage that Meltzer wrote then. And I'm assuming, hopefully, he doesn't to this day. But if he does, that's what pisses me off about this kind of stuff. Now. <sighs> God damn it, Conrad. <laughs> damn it. I love this. You see, oh. Okay, hold on. <sighs> okay. Get some of that Settle. scotch out, buddy. You'll be okay. Settle down. Now, the reason I brought in script writers is because I knew we were going to be going into Disney MGM. I knew Dusty single-handedly wasn't going to be able to format and produce for the, the, the formats that we would need to execute 13 weeks of television at one time. I knew as an executive producer, a young one, but I knew intuitively that if we were going to produce our shows and have some consistency and, and be able to communicate to all of the people on the production side of the of the business, what was going to happen so that they could do their jobs. Because that was one of the big challenges when I took over as executive producer, the right hand never knew what the left hand was doing. Right. Wrestling operations, the guys that were in booking the Oli's, you know, dusty and others, you know, they would, they would come up with their ideas and they would do a halfway decent job communicating it. But a lot of times the, the production side of it had no idea. 
And, 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 and as a result, things ended up looking like shit 90% of the time. Or if they did find out about something, they found out at the last minute and they didn't have time to prepare. That was one of the things I was trying to overcome. And I saw that as an announcer because before I was given that job as executive producer, I was one of the announcers who was on the receiving end of that kind of chaos. It's one of the things that I saw right away and went, okay, that, we've got to fix that. What's the best way to do that? Prepare formats. It wasn't Dusty's strength. Dusty was a visionary. Dusty was exceedingly creative and, and could really communicate ideas really well one-on-one. But when it came time to laying all this stuff out to 35 or 40 other people who were in charge of executing it, it, it a lot of shit got, you know, it, it fell through the cracks. So the writers I hired to really sit with Dusty and not try to be creative. I didn't hire these writers to try to be funny like Dave Meltzer purported I was doing because somehow he had that ability to get inside of my head. Um, that wasn't why we hired them. We hired them because I knew that they could create the structure. So if Dusty said, okay, I've, here's my story. I'm, first week, this is going to happen. The second week, this is going to happen. The third week, this is going to happen. I wanted the writers to be able to take his vision and break it down into pieces and articulate it in a format so that the rest of us who were in charge of producing it could halfway do a decent job. That's why we hired writers. They understood format. Dusty understood wrestling. I was trying to make a marriage there. Lawsuits are the threat of lawsuits seem to be an everyday part of life in the Bischoff era in WCW. From episode 9, covering the Great American Bash of 99, is the backstory of a lawsuit against WCW and members of the NWO by Jerry Sags, which evolves into a conversation about the haves and have-nots of the WCW locker room. Let's talk about another lawsuit that's happening with Jerry Sags. He has sued here WCW, Scott Hall, and Kevin Nash over what he's claiming to be a career threatening neck injury. And he says that he suffered a concussion and some spinal disc injuries after Scott Hall hit him with a chair at a house show back in January of 97 in Louisiana. And allegedly there is an incident between them and, um, these guys had some physicality. You maybe weren't there at the house show, but certainly you heard about this. Talk to me about the incident. And then what you remember of the lawsuit, if anything. Well, I, I can't give you a blow by blow on the incident because I was not there, but I certainly, you know, got an earful of it um, shortly thereafter. And, I, and by the way, I got an earful of it as recently as about a month ago uh, when I saw Jerry Sags uh, at a convention. We actually went out and had a beer or two together. And he still, to this day, you know, brings that up and he still gets hot about it. Um, but it occurred, you know, there was no love lost between Scott Hall and, and a lot of guys and, and Jerry Sags was not, you know, a guy to take too much shit from anybody. And I think there, the heat between those two guys escalated, uh, Jerry felt that, you know, Scott took liberties, um, and, and will attest to that to this day, whether you want to hear about it or not. And, uh, and it went down and it was a real injury. It wasn't a bullshit injury. Jerry, Jerry Sags is one of the most straight up guys I've ever met. Um, he'll tell you shit that you don't want to know, but it's because he really believes it. Um, he, he's not a bullshitter. He's not a, a worker, you know, so to speak when it comes to working injuries or, or faking injuries or faking angles or faking issues. He was a straight up guy and he was hot and 
you know, fortunately it didn't get any worse because it could have gotten a lot worse between those two. Tell me what you remember about the way the locker room or the office perceived this, because you said, you know, he had an issue with Scott Hall as did a lot of guys. It feels as if Sags would have had the support of the locker room, but maybe Hall, because he's a bigger star, had the support of the office. Correct that narrative and just tell me, you know, what the temperature about this particular incident was in regards to fallout amongst the company. You know, I, I, I can only give you my perspective. I can't tell you what guys in a locker room were feeling or thinking at this time. Um, when I heard about it, number one, I believe Jerry. First, first and foremost, I didn't think Jerry was making it up. I didn't think he was working an angle to get an insurance check. None of that. I believed it. Uh, I had known Jerry since back in the AWA. Uh, I used to hang out with him and Brian, you know, when I first started in the business. So we were, we were good friends. Uh, I mean, again, not to kind of hang out and, you know, have dinner, you know, twice a week kind of friends, but we had a good, a good relationship. And I believed him, number one. And number two, Scott did have, to your point or to your question, Scott did have a lot of heat with a lot of guys in the locker room. Scott was a pain in the ass. When Scott was messed up, which was, you know, fairly regularly, um, he was, he was incredibly difficult to work, to deal with. And there were a lot of guys that, that resented him or didn't want to work with him or were hot at him for whatever reason. A lot of guys understood that he was dealing with a demon. He was dealing with, you know, an addiction issue. And that brings out the worst in some people. And a lot of people would, some people I should say, would give him slack and try to stay out of his way or try not to let uh, Scott bother them when they knew he was he was in a wreck. Um, but there were other people that just didn't want to put up with his shit. And, and I recognize that. Now, you asked me, you know, from the office's point of view, did, did I or we as an office collectively, you know, favor one or the other because Scott was a bigger star? Uh, I think to a degree that was true. It's not that we favored him. It's that we, I... I should say, uh, cut him more slack. I tried to accommodate him. I tried to work around Scott's problems for a long time until they became insurmountable. Um, there were a lot of, you know, I got Scott into treatment. I, I put up with a lot of shit personally, you know, that probably nobody's ever heard of, um, that didn't play itself out in front of a bunch of people in a locker room or on television, put up a lot of shit from Scott that I, probably wouldn't have put up with, with other people because he was a very critical part of the, the puzzle at that time. Yeah. And I know you probably get shit for that, but I mean, it is what you do when you've got a team. Uh, and I know that's not always popular, but I mean, there's a famous story about, you know, Jimmy Johnson, the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys sort of ha having a film session. And there being a, uh, a third string linebacker who kept falling asleep at the back of the film session. So he walks back there and wakes him and says, Hey, pack your shit, you're cut. And then walks towards the front and shakes another player and says, Hey, wake up Emmett." The phrase that's not going to work for me, brother is one we've often heard on 83 weeks. And the implication is an ongoing and contentious one between Conrad and Eric. Episode 10 now, which covers Goldberg's famous Georgia Dome Nitro title victory over Hulk Hogan. Eric does his best to explain Hogan's motivation, makes an effort to dispel what some think is common knowledge about the Hulkster's backstage reputation. Let me ask you this. You know, there's lots of rumor and innuendo about how this match with Hogan came together. And I know you sort of laid it out and you're in the parking lot at the deli and blah, blah, blah. 
But a lot of people say that the reason Hogan agreed to do this is because he saw the money in it and he saw that he would be able to get the credit in front of Turner executives who were there that night. And these are conspiracy theorists. I know that's what you'll say, but let me ask you this. When this loss happens, it feels like when you've got a guy who's undefeated like this in the locker room, man, it's blood in the water. The sharks are circling. Everybody wants to be the guy to beat the guy who's undefeated. And to me, this feels like a, a thing where Hogan would say, okay, I'm going to drop the belt to him, but there's going to be money in a rematch down the line and I'll get the win back. Was that ever discussed? No. And here's, here, here is the, the flaw in, in the premise of your conspiracy theorists who would believe that nonsense. I'm going to get through a whole, whole show without saying bullshit. I promise. Well, God damn it. I did it again. I was trying not to say bullshit. Um, if the premise of that position is that Hogan only agreed to do it because there'd be a payday in it for him right off the bat that the premise goes down the sewer. Because Hogan's payday didn't matter whether he had another big-time match with with Bill Goldberg or not. His pay was going to be his pay. That's a flaw. That's that that's the disease that it's it's like a cancer that eats away at the fucking brains of the people that read this kind of nonsense and and theory and conspiracy in the dirt sheets and on message boards and in all the other ways and means that people who like to think they know more than they do communicate about important moments like this. Hogan's paycheck wouldn't have varied a nickel whether he would have beaten Magnum Tokyo or whether he would have lost to Bill Goldberg. And it wouldn't have mattered a week later or a month later or six months later. His contract wasn't up for negotiation. There were no stakes. There was no financial gain whatsoever to Hulk Hogan by deciding on his own to call me and suggest that we do this match. He was motivated by doing the right thing for Bill. That's it. And people that want to believe that Hulk Hogan is selfish and that he only looked out for himself because look, that's what people have been saying for so many years in the dirt sheets. That was the, that even when they didn't come out and say it, it was always inferred and implied. And there was always these nuanced little, you know, messages between the lines where, you know, Hogan never did anything if unless it was to benefit himself. I'm calling bullshit on the line there. I did it again. I'm calling that one. It's not true. I was fucking there. I was on the other end of the phone. People want to believe it, believe it. People don't want to believe it, go back and crawl in your little fucking dirt box hole and go back and read, you know, old dirt sheets and satisfy yourself that you know something that no one else does. But it's not true. There was only one motivation, and that was because Hulk felt like this was a great that was a great moment. He knew the reaction that he would get. He's a performer. Do I think he was looking forward to being in the middle of the ring and being a part of that reaction? Absolutely. Is that selfish? No, that's a performer. But there was no financial investment or or financial um, incentive in any way, shape, or form for him to do it. So when WCW had a pay-per-view that did particularly well, Hogan wouldn't participate. 
No, he got a piece of the pay-per-view revenue. Okay. He would have. He would have. In fact, if if your premise is true, if what you're trying to suggest is true, then Hogan would have been the first one to say, "Why don't we save it for a pay-per-view?" Right. Well, listen. I'm not arguing. Here's here's my here's my my takeaway, and here's the reason I think that conspiracy makes sense. Hogan Goldberg goes on to be the most viewed wrestling match in cable television history. Um, it's the first quarter hour in the history of wrestling to reach 5 million homes. It drew 5,054,000 homes, which is an excess of 7 million viewers total. It does a 6.91 rating and an 11.8 share, and it broke the all-time record. That, to me, feels like something a guy like Hulk Hogan, who I have tremendous respect for, who I marked out like a little kid for a couple of weeks ago, not disparaging Hogan, but it does feel like at some level it's like, at this point, we're trying to break records. We don't have no, to prove. No, who we no, are. no. You're you're assuming that because of what you think you know of a guy like Hogan, as you just said. But you're wrong, Conrad. If I came to Wait, you, hang on, hang on. You're saying I'm wrong that Hogan didn't want to set records. I'm saying you're wrong if you think that that was the reason that he was inspired or 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 or, or chose to suggest that we do this match. No, I'm saying it, you're flat it, out wrong. Uh, here's what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that Hogan knows. If I make this match happen, it'll beat my, it'll beat raw. We're getting our ass kicked. So it'll look like I was on top when it won and, it, and we got the momentum back and we popped a big rating and set an all time rating. And then there'll be in such high demand for the rematch. We'll clean up on the fucking pay-per-view to me. That makes total logical sense. If I know I'm getting paid on the back end of the pay-per-view and right now we're getting our ass kicked. But if we do this one match and I do this one thing, it turns the whole momentum around for the company that looks like, Hey, Add a boy Hulk, add a way to not be selfish and pop a big rating and set a record. And you get the credit for that. And Oh, by the way, on the back end, I'm going to get paid handsomely for the rematch, which is, but there was no rematch. There was no, look, if if what you, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try hard. Look, I'm tight with Hulk. So it's easy for me to, to get defensive over things like this because I, I know him better. I knew him then. I know know him now, but let's just play this out. Let's play, let's play out the, the conspiracy theory and the prevailing perception that Hulk is a shrewd businessman who's only out for himself. And if he's going to make a choice or a decision, he's going to make sure that it benefits himself. Wait, hang on now. To be clear, I didn't say any of that. I said that this would turn business around and it would draw a big buy rate and a big rating. It did both. So I, I, I don't think anybody, people who say that Hogan just looks out for himself, they don't understand business because that's, I mean, it is what it, I'm not disparaging Hogan for that. I'm not sitting here saying Hogan's pushing someone down, but to say that Hogan is not a shrewd businessman and not an opportunist, not in a negative way. Cause that word does have a negative connotation, but Hey, when you see an opportunity, you pounce on it. I did with a podcast with you. You did with a podcast with me. We could say opportunist in a bad way or a positive way. If he saw an opportunity to pop a big rating, why would you not want to do that? If you're in the spotlight I, 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 listen, I agree with you. I'm not arguing that point. The, the point that I'm arguing that I started to argue was your suggestion that the conspiracy theory is defensible because 
if you believe that Hogan was all of the things that people who believe in that conspiracy thought he was, then Hulk Hogan would have been smart enough and shrewd enough, especially with an attorney like Henry Holmes, who represented not only Hulk Hogan, but also Bill Goldberg, would have made sure before that night that there would have been a contract in place or an agreement in place, an addendum to an existing agreement that would have assured Hulk Hogan that there was going to be a rematch on a pay-per-view. But guess what? That didn't happen because that was not the motivation. Okay. That's what that's I want to talk point. about. So let's talk about that. Like I, I get, there's no contract in place, but surely when he's dropping it, I mean, that's not, that's not Hogan looking out for himself. That's just like commonly accepted booking. Is it not to say, oh, well the fucking rematch will be huge, right? That's not crazy to suggest. It's not crazy to suggest. No, it wasn't the, it wasn't the conversation. It wasn't the reason we did it. It wasn't the plan. It never was prior to the match with Goldberg and it never was after the match with Goldberg. It was a, it was a one-off. It was, it was spontaneous combustion at its best. It was the essence of what made Nitro Nitro. You have to tune in because you never know what's going to happen. Other people have talked about that kind of branding and marketing for their show. You know, certainly the WWE tried to emulate us in that respect when they went live like we did. And the reason you go live is you try to condition your audience to believe that you have to tune in for this stuff. Because it's live, anything can happen. But you have to deliver on that message. And you have to deliver on that branding in order for the audience to believe that it's true and effectively harness that type of, of psychology for your audience. That's what this was designed to do. It was the right time at the right place. So there was no plan in effect, no discussion. We had other plans. We had other plans for, for August. We had a pay-per-view already set. We already knew what we were doing in August. So there was just no discussion. Maybe wrongly, I will admit, probably dropped the fucking ball, not having the rematch. I'll take that hit. Right now, I'll take it. But I'm telling you, that was not the discussion then. Why didn't it happen? I mean, because I just, like I just said, we had other plans that we were committed to that we felt good about and didn't feel that it was necessary to throw out everything that we had in play at that time, uh, including Carl Malone and Dennis Rodman and all the marketing and promotion that is going into that pay per view. We didn't feel like it was necessary um, to disrupt all of that. We did people. have we did have a plan going out three or four months. We had pay-per-views that were advertised for July and August and September and October. And to, to completely change all of that didn't make any sense. If you listen to my podcast with Conrad Thompson, What Happened When, you'll know that I often say that everything's a work. And there's no better example of that in the world of wrestling than the persona and career of Brian Pillman, whether in the wrestling ring, the dirt sheets, or in real life. On episode 11 of 83 Weeks, the career of Brian Pillman in WCW was covered, as well as some of his often debated maneuvers outside the ring. Here, Eric puts Conrad to the test and asks, were you worked? You sort of insinuated earlier when we were talking about his, his real life problems. Hey, if, if Vince McMahon had a guy who had all this stuff going on, would he use them? Would he put them in? And of course not. What's the payoff here? If you're really going to let him go, why are you still letting him have TV? Are you just that interested in the Russo style booking of, they don't know what they're going to get next. Let's give them a surprise. Let's give them a, surprise. no, 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 that's not Russo. Fuck. Don't give Russo that much credit. Look, the, the, the loose cannon, you know, Brian Pillman's character in that storyline, um, was one we're still talking about. 
and it's it's not because it was a, we just flew by the seat of our pants and as you just inferred and we're just going to let him do whatever he wants and we don't really know where it's going to go and whatever happens happens that wasn't the case the, the 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 agreement that Brian and I had was let's play this loose cannon character out play it out here in WCW and when it's time to go it's time to go go get yourself over you know, either an ECW or WWF, wherever you end up, and then let's bring you back. And hopefully when we bring you back, I can justify the money you want. That was it. There was nothing more, nothing less to it than that. And it was a cooperative kind of thing. Um, all we were doing it at the point that you're talking about right now was letting that play out. But That's Eric, all. Do, you, do you realize how stupid that sounds? You know, when you're like, Hey, let me get you over. So then you can go get over somewhere else and then come back and cost me more money. Well, it, it doesn't sound stupid. We he didn't want to stay. We weren't going to get him over. He wasn't going to become the loose cannon and then be able to qualify for a double, to double the salary. There was nothing we were going to be able to do in WCW that was going to allow me to justify doubling his salary. So the, the next option, well, well, I guess if that sounds stupid to you or, or our listeners, then I guess my option would have been to try to bury him or to just cut him loose with five months left on his contract and pay him anyway. I submit to you that those two options are even dumber as opposed to saying, look, here's a guy I like. Here's a character that could work. Let's leave on good terms. Let's let the storyline play itself out. Where he gets so fucking crazy, I've got to fire him. So there's at least logic to it. And then if he gets over and there's a way for me to justify giving him the money he wants, great. I'm happy to do it because I like him and I believe in him. That's all there is to it. But you're in a Monday night war. I mean, doesn't it feel not more... at the time we weren't? Okay. No, we weren't. It wasn't it, it no, we weren't. What year are we talking about here? What specifically? Nineteen ninety-six. We're ninety. We we weren't in a war. We were in a blood. We were in a slaughter. So, in your opinion, it didn't matter if he left. Like, you know, I guess what I'm saying is traditional booking is in my. This is, but it's always been seen to me anyway. Is hey, this guy's leaving. He can't go over our guys on his way out. Let's make let's job him out on TV, and then he can go work for them. But he can't but, leave here with some with some sort of push. But it it I know that's you know that's 1970s and 1980s. Um, old style, traditional booking. I liked Brian. We had a good relationship. I wanted to keep Brian, but I couldn't afford him for what he needed and wanted. So this was the best possible solution. I wasn't worried about Brian going to WWF at that point. I mean, I knew he was going to, I knew there was a, I should say, I didn't know he was going to, I knew that there was a possibility that that was going to happen. And I'm, this is not taking anything away from Brian as a performer and a character, but at that particular time i was just not concerned about the adverse impact of brian pillman going to the wwf let me ask I wasn't. you about the famous story about uncensored uncensored 96 was basically hulk hogan and macho man randy savage in a triple cage against every bad guy in the history of wrestling <laughs> and meltzer report hogan apparently ordered pillman to return immediately and get involved with him Rather than milk the angle as originally planned to create a situation that doesn't look like a normal wrestling angle by being aligned with the main heel group, it meant being on the same side as Kevin Sullivan, which basically ruins all the plans made previously and exposes WCW's long-term booking. 
What his exact ideas for Pillman were, were is unclear, but by having Pillman return in this manner, kills all the convoluted BS WCW tried to work all its wrestlers with and killed 98% of the impact Brian Pillman coming back with enough heat behind him to actually make a difference and finally break out of the mid card pack. So the suggestion is Hogan has his finger on the pulse of the business brother. And he sees that Pillman's getting a little buzz. So, Hey, put him over there with Zeus and Bane and Kevin Sullivan and the Zodiac and everybody else. And let me beat him too. And he no shows chat me up. What really happened? I, I can't shut you up about that. Cause it's absurd. I, I, I just can't. There's just nothing for, there's no, there's not enough of anything there for me to really respond to. Well, he was advertised for the pay-per-view. He doesn't show up. Why not? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely cannot remember. All right. So let's talk about the, the release because ultimately, you know, Hogan's power play that you don't recall exactly is what causes the pivot for the release because Brian doesn't show up and you vaguely mention it on commentary when you make comment or you have the commentators make comment about, and we don't even know where Brian Pillman is. The book says Hulk made the call to get Brian back at TV that Monday. And he raised the subject of the new deal with Bischoff and was offered a renewal of his existing contract at $225,000. Pillman, of course, feels like he's got some leverage here and asked for $500,000. Well, obviously that doesn't go over and he doesn't show up at the same time. It feels like Brian has sort of shot his shot with ECW because he ran a bunch of commercials for a new hotline that he was trying to get over as his own dirt sheet hotline, but Heyman sends him a bill for $7,600. And that's the end of the ECW relationship. Pillman flips out. So now Hogan wants him to come in and be on this heel faction and take the L, which Pillman thinks gives him no leverage. He doesn't think he can do anything with ECW again, since they're holding him up for $7,600. So somebody pitches the idea of a release. And this has been the thing that everybody sort of circles back to that you had legal draft up a release. And allegedly this is Brian's idea that right before uncensored, you would give him a written release and then he could use it as leverage for everyone else and to create some buzz. But that's the way he says he got a better, he got a better deal. In your opinion, when you sent that release out, did you think that was really the end or did you still think this is a working release? Because that's the way it's been framed for 20 years. It's not, it wasn't a working release. We agreed. He was coming up to the end of this deal. I don't know how many different ways I can say this to be any, any clearer or to cover bases that somehow I'm leaving uncovered. Well, we agreed. We were going to go ahead. The reason I say that, and I just want the emphasis is because everybody, and I know you're going to get fired up when I say this, including Dave Meltzer says that it was not supposed to be the real release, but that to me, what, what you're saying here is. Brian wasn't working you. Brian was working Dave. Correct. If, if, if Dave believed that that was a working release, then yeah, he got worked. 
Cause he says it's one of the greatest things in the history of wrestling. It's so unbelievable. He didn't tell me ahead of time he was doing it, but as soon as he did it and he told me what he had done, I was like, no way. And he says, yeah, everybody thinks I'm released because they sent me a real letter of release. They don't believe it, but it's a real letter. I told him we've got to fool the secretaries. We've got to fool everyone. And this is what Meltzer is saying that Brian told him. So Brian believes that he's working you, or at least that's what he wants Meltzer to believe. But Meltzer believes that you've been worked. This is like who's on first of works, is it not? It is. And and, and it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to react to some of this stuff. And for me personally, it's a little bit easier because I can pull myself back and look at the major beats in everything that went down. Right. And some of the shit that 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 people are suggesting you know, if, if Meltzer is suggesting that I'm the one that got worked and he believed that I would actually write a release, a legal release, there's no such thing as a fucking working release. It's either a release or it isn't. It, 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 it Some of the stuff that, that people, whether they've been talking about it and believing it, have, have allowed themselves to get sucked into it for 20 years or not is kind of fucking irrelevant. It started out as bullshit, and it just becomes bigger bullshit as people keep telling the story and adding to it over time. Brian knew that he couldn't make the money he wanted to make. He wanted to leave. I didn't want him to leave, but I couldn't afford to pay him. So we worked cooperatively to create this loose cannon character with the hopes that Brian was going to land somewhere, increase his own value, and then come back at the appropriate time. That's the beginning and the end of that story. I didn't go to, to, I mean, Brian and I didn't stay in contact while he was working in WWF probably once every six or eight weeks. Not, not every day, not every week, about once, not a little more than once a month. I'd get a call from Brian when he was on the road. Um, we, and, and we just talked shit. We didn't, we we're talking about wrestling. We weren't working on an angle for him to come back or anything. We just kept the door open. He'd tell me how things were going. I'd tell him how things were going in WCW. We just stayed in touch so that when the time was right, if the time was right, he could come back and hopefully make the money he, he wanted to make. So let's talk about that because allegedly, and I guess we should mention here, this, the release happens in February or March, rather he's in a horrible car accident on April 15th. Everybody knows the story there. Um, just an unbelievable accident in his Hummer. And I guess we should mention nobody's even sure that he's going to be able to wrestle at this point. So all this, I have a contract. I don't, I'm leveraging another one. All that's in jeopardy here. And a lot of that could be traced back based on opinion, you know, cause we don't know for sure, but it certainly feels like there may have been substances involved there. Vic McMahon has a meeting with Brian and his wife, Melanie at Titan towers on May 23rd to try to lure him to sign with the company, but they're not offering guaranteed money. Just an opportunity. As we all know, Pillman behind the scenes is still trying to convince you to give him a half a million dollar contract to no avail, but the book says you made an offer over the phone on June 1st for $425,000 for three years. And while there were particulars to be worked out, everybody agrees in principle, or at least that's what the book says. And you obviously felt good enough to show clips on nitro on June 3rd of his situation with Kevin Sullivan back in February, the whole, I respect you Booker man stuff. So it looks like he's coming back, but it doesn't happen. Did you go back after letting him go in March and offer 425 on June 1st? No. 
Okay. Why did you air the clip on June 3rd? Did you think you had a new deal worked out on June 1st for a, re- a reduced amount of money? We didn't have we didn't have a deal in place. There was a conversation or maybe two about him coming back at the rate that we had offered him, but there was no deal in place. Allegedly, he gets an offer from Vince McMahon, and before he signs, um, he calls you one last time and then ultimately signs the deal. And he signed on June 7th with the WWF. Did you feel like at that time, when you find out that he had signed, that you had lost an opportunity or was there, were there so many question marks because of his personal life, because of his injury, were you just ready to be rid of it? What's your feeling when you find out that he's gone, he's going to the WWF. I was happy for him. Look, I mean, <laughs> trying hard to think of a different way to say this and I haven't already said I knew he wouldn't have been happy coming back for a lesser amount of money right I, I, I knew he wouldn't would I have given him his job back at the rate that I that I could justify and afford yes I would have um, so this could but I, the 425 straight fiction not not real never happened okay hey thanks all of you for listening to the best of 83 weeks it's Tony Shivani here. And when I'm not busy with football, basketball, baseball, MLW, Lois, dogs, kids, grandkids, or maybe some other endeavors I'm going to get involved in, or hosting a best of special because almost all of Conrad's other podcast co-hosts have been hired back to the WWE, I have a podcast of my own with Conrad Thompson called What Happened When, where we take a look back at WCW and the NWA and watch together with you some of the most interesting, memorable, and outrageous events in WCW. Then we analyze... Get the behind-the-scenes stories and, all right, it's it's mostly dick jokes. I get it, but you can listen to those dick jokes every Wednesday on all your podcast platforms or even get it early with tons of bonus content on our Patreon site. That's patreon.com forward slash WHW Monday. Hey, it's been my pleasure to keep the butts in the seats for Eric and Conrad this week and invite you to listen next week and every week to 83 Weeks. Now, if you'll excuse me, i got to go look for Conrad's six-man belt up in the attic. Bye-bye, slapdicks.